Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me, as usual, is Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. It's been too long. We missed last week. Yes, sorry to our listeners uh, (laughs) for the unexpected and unscheduled (laughs) interruption. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Jimmy, both you and I, like many folks in this country right now, uh, both got hit with COVID. How are you feeling, by the way? I'm feeling better now. Um, It's hard to say if the general fatigue is uh, an after-lingering effect of COVID or the fact that I have a five-month-old that uh, keeps me up (laughs) on it. Either one. I have a feeling it's it's probably the five-month-old, but, you know. Yeah, who knows, (laughs) right? Jury's still out on that one. But, um, yeah, COVID has affected the podcast, but not only the podcast, it is also kind of complicating things over at the Supreme Court, right? So, you know, the justices are obviously back in person since the beginning of the term. And that didn't really pose much of a problem for the first few months. But after they came back from the holidays, things started getting a little bit more complicated. And I'll just say that that uh, David Boys, the high-powered Boys Schiller and Flexner founder and attorney, um, he was due to make his you know highly anticipated return to the Supreme Court in a case over Nazi looted art this week on Tuesday, but he um, had to dial in remotely after also testing positive from COVID because the court, of course, is requiring attorneys who are slated to appear to present a negative test. Now, he's the third attorney to have now dialed in remotely after a COVID positive test, just showing how prevalent this virus is in the country and how things are getting a little bit bumpy. But uh, the court seems to be pushing through. Speaking of COVID and bumpy, uh, the court had a bit of a, uh, uh, I don't want to say scandal, but but it came a little close. <laughs> a, public situ- uh, a public relations uh, situation, let's call it that. Uh, that, mass that's, gate. that's a good way of saying it. Yes, mask gate. Um, so on Tuesday morning, Nina Totenberg from NPR uh, had a reported that there were divisions at the high court over Justice Gorsuch um, refusing to wear a mask at oral arguments. It's been well documented. He hasn't been wearing a mask. Most of the other justices have been um, for at least some, if not all of the arguments. Um, and Meanwhile, Justice Sotomayor, she's been participating in our arguments via phone from her chambers. She, you know, as we've, I think, discussed before, um, Justice Sotomayor is a, a lifelong diabetic, so she's in the high-risk category for contracting the virus. Um, and she also sits right next to Justice Gorsuch on the bench. Yeah, so the Totenberg report comes out, and it claims that uh, Chief Justice Roberts had actually asked the justices, quote, in some form, uh, to wear masks amid this Omicron surge. And, you know, as we know, all the other justices, with the exception of Gorsuch, wore masks. So the the Trump appointee's refusal, according to the NPR report, was the basically one of the primary reasons why uh, Justice Sotomayor had not been going to arguments or the court's weekly conferences. So, you know, naturally, we, we, I think our, our listeners are probably familiar with the social media machine and how it works. So in the aftermath of the this report coming out, chaos ensues, controversy abounds. Um, the pile on begins of Justice Neil Gorsuch um, uh, for his supposed you know callousness to a uh, colleague with a pre-existing condition that puts her in a high risk category um, for for COVID. But you know the first sign that something kind of weird was afoot was that 
a former Gorsuch clerk and, and confidant um, on Twitter by the name of Mike Davis kind of publicly and very confidently asserted that the story was completely false and baseless. And then we got some some big updates yesterday on this mini controversy where Sotomayor and Gorsuch actually felt compelled to go ahead and release a joint statement at least purporting to knock down this story. And the statement reads, reporting that Justice Sotomayor asked Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask surprised us. It is false. While we may sometimes disagree about the law, we are warm colleagues and friends. Well, that did not stem, uh, though, the public media situation um, as kind of the social media uh, tide uh, continued forward. Uh, it was pointed out that, um, you know, this didn't seem to address Nina Totenberg's reporting, which was that Chief Justice Roberts had been the one to ask Justice Gorsuch, not Justice Sotomayor. Exactly. And this compels Chief Justice Roberts to then enter the fray and release a statement on his own to kind of clear the matter up once and for all, denying that he made such a request and directly contradicting the NPR report. Now, I should say that NPR stands by Totenberg's reporting, and I think we're just going to leave the matter there and just let listeners be as caught up as we are on the controversy that will go down as Massgate. Or I guess, I don't know, I just feel like we should come up with other controversy names other than attaching gate to everything. It's a little tired, no? It is, but it's it's also fairly, you know, Easy, easy to to, <laughs> to get your 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 head around. Um, so yes, so that is uh, kind of the big takeaways from this week's kind of mini drama at the Supreme Court. Um, but let's move forward because it was otherwise a very busy week um, for for the justices uh, beyond this this kind of like mini scandal. Um, there was actually an opinion released on Thursday morning, but the bigger news may have actually been that this Wednesday night, there was a shadow docket ruling um, where the court declined a pres- former President Trump's request to block his White House documents from a House select committee that's investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. He had been claiming executive privilege to protect the confidential records. There had been some kind of discussion uh, at the lower court level, court of appeals, you know, whether a former president can kind of ask for that privilege versus a current president. While there was one noted dissent from Justice Thomas, um, the justices basically concluded that, you know, and agreed with the court of appeals that his claims would have failed even if he were the incumbent and he were current president. Um, and that basically these these documents have to be released to the committee. And moving on to other orders of note in the last week, we had a pretty interesting cert grant um, on Friday in a case called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Now, this case has made national headlines, and it basically asks whether Washington school officials violated an assistant football coach's First Amendment rights when they suspended him because he insisted on praying at midfield immediately after games and was often joined by players and members of the public. In shorthand, people know this as the the case of the praying football coach. Uh, The coach, Joseph Kennedy, he's appealing his loss before the Ninth Circuit, which ruled that the school district was well within its rights to suspend uh, the coach for these um, prayers 
after school games because in the Ninth Circuit's view, allowing these, um, you know, uh, these, these large gatherings at, 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 at the 50-yard line after these football games whereby he would deliver these motivational speeches intertwined with religious themes, that, according to the Ninth Circuit, would have been a violation of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which obviously forbids the uh, you know a, a state institution or a school from endorsing efficient official religion. So the case has been you know percolating in the courts for a while now, and in some good news for Kennedy, the last time it came up to the high court three years ago, several conservative justices called the case troubling. But, you know, they sent it back down because they wanted the lower courts to still iron out some of the factual details. Well, in the, in the, in the interim, you know, the court has only gotten more conservative and sympathetic to these claims of religious liberty with the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So now we have four um, Supreme Court justices at least agreeing to take this case up. That's the minimum requirement for cert. And one of the two questions posed to the high court in his, posi- in his petition was whether a public school employee who says a, quote, brief, quiet prayer by himself uh, in the vicinity of students is engaged in unprotected government speech. Now, this kind of strikes at the heart of the dispute here because there's a lot of disagreement over what exactly happened. You know, what was Kennedy doing? Was he simply delivering those, quote, brief, quiet prayers to himself? Or were these, in the eyes of the school, you know, large gatherings that he was essentially soliciting or inviting students to participate in during his official in his official public capacity as a school employee and football coach. Now the school says that that description of a brief quiet prayer by himself completely misdescribes or ignores the facts of the record and far from a quiet prayer, you know, he continued to lead these large gatherings in uh, group in in you know in in sessions of prayer. Um, so that's kind of the dispute in a nutshell. We're going to obviously hear a lot more when the, the when the merits briefing comes in, in, the ensuing weeks and months, and eventually when this case is set for argument. But that tees up the first of three First Amendment cases that we're going to be talking about today. And Natalie, uh, the the second one is uh, involves oral arguments that you were kind of keeping a close eye on. Yeah, that's right. So this, this first case on Tuesday. Um was, is basically very much along the lines of the case that you were just describing uh, taken up in that it's, you know, a matter of a question of the First Amendment, free speech, religious uh, speech rights. Um, and this one involved is, is called Shirtliff versus Boston. It was argued on Tuesday. Um, and it's essentially at the heart of the suit is whether a city-owned flagpole should be considered a form for public speech versus government speech. So what's the background here, Natalie? So Boston has a flagpole where it welcomes private groups to fly their own flags in place of the cities. Um, it, however, in 2017, denied a camp's request to fly a Christian flag, a Christian camp's request to fly a flag, um, saying they only allowed secular flags. But this, this, you know, the, the Boston has been doing this for 12 years. It had never before denied a group. Um, and, you know, there are some arguments to be made that, you know, other flags that had some religious symbolism, if not directly to tied to a religious organization, had been flown previously. Um, but the city, you know, the city sees the flagpole as a forum for government speech, not a public forum for private speech. This was their, this has been their argument throughout the case, which went through the First Circuit and the First Circuit backed Boston. 
Okay, so the First Circuit sides with Boston and says that, you know, the government can't be basically forced to display religious symbols that it doesn't necessarily endorse, effectively holding that this is a form of government speech, right? So Exactly. Um, so okay. also would, would violate the Establishment Clause if they right. were to do so. Right. Um, Tuesday's arguments, though, it did seem like some of the justices were not really siding with with Boston here on this one. Um, specifically, Justices Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch um, seem to disagree with this assessment. Uh, Justice Kagan at some point, you know, was like, you know, if you look at the lack of control over this flagpoint, it's hard not to think of it as a public forum. And what she was kind of referring to is that it seems that Boston never really um, took much of a process in reviewing applications for flags that go up and seem to kind be like rubber a rubber stamping. stamp, right? Exactly. Seem to be rubber stamping um, these 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 requests up until it came to, you know, this Christian camp asking to fly its flag. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems like the justices are suggesting that this these city flagpoles kind of have all the hallmarks of a public forum. Now not to say that this, I think, is a cut and dry case where we're going to, you know, be saying this is how it's going to turn out. Um, there were other additional questions that, you know, Justice Kagan herself actually also, you know, at one point raised the concern that, you know, if we decide that this is a completely open, you know, public forum free from government control, does this mean someone could raise a swastika in front of City Hall? And, you know, the camp's counsel said yes, according to like wow. how how it would be kind of categorized. Um, so I think, you know, there, there there's a lot here for the, the justices to sift through, um, you know, both in terms of the public forum issue, um, in terms of Boston's process for this program of allowing private flags to fly. Um, you know, Boston has pledged to change its flag raising program if it does lose the case. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, just how broad or how narrow the court ends up ruling in this case yeah i mean just kind of putting on my speculative hat here i have a hard time seeing the supreme court endorse a ruling that allows you know swastika flags on you know boston city hall of, of flagpoles but that's just my speculation we'll obviously have to wait for a ruling in the case yeah i, I, I tend to agree with you I, I have a feeling boston's gonna have to change how it does its program but yeah how the justices kind of rule in in what needs to be changed remains to be seen. And I'm equally as puzzled by this fascinating case that was argued on Wednesday as to what's going to happen in uh, Federal Election Commission versus Cruz for Senate. Now, normally, Natalie, I think we kind of prognosticate a little bit and, and, and read the tea leaves of where we think a case is going. But this one kind of, it's kind of a labyrinth. And it I, I, I'm still not convinced who is going to win at the end of it. But in a okay. nutshell. Wait, back up and tell us, like, what's the what with this case? <laughs> okay, what's the what? That's a good question. The what is that the Federal Election Commission, represented by the Department of Justice, is appealing a victory that was scored by uh, Ted Cruz, the Republican senator from Texas, challenging uh, a provision of campaign finance law. So this is the first big kind of significant campaign finance case the Supreme Court's heard in a while. 
Uh, it involves the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002 and specifically deals with these kind of obscure provisions having to do with a candidate's ability to lend its own his or her own campaign money and some certain restrictions on how the campaigns can repay that money. So let's dig down just a little bit deeper into what happened here. Okay, so currently as it stands, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, it has a section in it, section 304, that says that a campaign can't use more than $250,000 of funds raised after an election, post-election funds, to repay a loan from a candidate. So the reason behind this particular provision, like why are they focusing on money raised after an election versus before an election? Because after all, the law doesn't say anything about, how, you know, it doesn't cap um, how much a campaign can pay back the candidate's loan with funds raised before an election. But let me give you an example. That so may, it only does that with, with money raised after the election. Yeah. And that may seem like, well, what's the deal with that? Well, why? Right. The deal is that according to the government, um, Congress was trying to um, kind of address some certain corruption problems that might be posed in the context of after an election that might not apply before an election. So let me give you an example. Let's say, um, you know, a candidate loans his campaign like a million dollars. Right. And, okay. you know, before an election, Campaign contributors generally, they, they want to see their, their candidate get elected. And so, you know, they want to spread the word that we think our candidate's the best. So they give the campaign money for that express purpose. Now, what about people who contribute money to a campaign after that, that, that candidate has already won the election? Well, then you're not obviously contributing money so that that candidate will be elected. The election's already happened. So you're if there's a huge outstanding debt from the candidate, potentially one of the reasons you might be contributing that money is to pay back the candidate's loans that he otherwise would not be able to have, you know, uh, be made whole from. So according to the government, Congress was treating this, these post-election funds like a gift. You know, they should be regulated more like a gift rather than like a traditional campaign contribution before an election. So it gets a little bit in the weeds here, but are you following me more or less? A little bit, but I can see the reasoning there. I can I can oh. understand that, that, at least that argument. Right. Okay, so what Cruz did in this case was the day before the election, he didn't like this provision of the BCRA whatsoever. And so he lends his own campaign $260,000. Now that's $10,000 above that 250 cap that I just mentioned. Then his campaign, you know, they wait around for a little while to repay that money. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated, I have to confess. Okay. So, keeping in mind everything that I just told you. Okay. So, the FEC, in attempting to implement this campaign finance law, it goes a step further. So, we're not talking about, you know, a statute anymore. We're talking about the FEC's implementing regulation. Now, what the FEC says is that regardless of you know, what funds are used, whether it's pre-election funds, whether it's post-election funds, any amount over $250,000 that's not paid back within 20 days is gonna be treated as a contribution. 
it's going to be not able to be repaid at all, whether you're talking about money before or after. Okay, so what happens in this case is that the FEC rules means that, you know, necessarily in this case, because Cruz campaign didn't pay it back within 20 days, there's a $10,000 injury. Okay, so that's kind of the basic facts of the case. I know it's it's a mouthful, but this allows us to really dive into what happened in oral arguments. Okay, I think I'm following you. Basically, Cruz set him up for the, Cruz set himself up here though for this legal battle, right? I mean, this exactly. Is, okay. Okay. So what happens is the FCC loses in the Ninth Circuit, and they go up to the Supreme Court and they say exactly what you just said. This was a self-inflicted injury from Cruz. You know, in fact, they point to the fact that, you know, he had something like $2.8 million in documented campaign cash on hand that he could have used to pay back this loan that he made and didn't. Um, But, you know, that actually got exactly nowhere with the justices (laughs) of the Supreme Court who say, you know, okay, you're saying that this is a self-inflicted injury and therefore he lacks standing. Well, what about, for instance, Justice Clarence Thomas says, what about Mr. Plessy? You know, he's referring to Homer Plessy. He's the, you know, the mixed race man in the famous landmark Supreme Court case that sat on the, you know, whites only rail car in the late 19th century and set up that challenge to segregation. Obviously, he was unsuccessful. But, you know, the point that Thomas was making was like, you know, this broad ruling that any self-inflicted harm from a uh, potential litigant who could have otherwise... complied with an unconstitutional law, you know, that that's going to like have serious repercussions for constitutional litigation. And even Justice Breyer at one point is like, yeah, where are you getting this? He's talking to um, <laughs> Malcolm Stewart, the the uh, uh, deputy solicitor general representing the FEC here. So that's not like what you want to hear, right? If you're I'm an sorry. Advocate. Yeah, you, you do not want to hear a justice asking that question while you're <laughs> in oral arguments. Okay, so if he does have standing, then that leaves us to just basically the merits of this case, right? And 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 where did the justices seem to be falling on that issue? The justices seemed pretty skeptical of the government's argument. This is the argument that there's this compelling interest to regulate uh, the amount in post-election funds that can be used for repaying a candidate because of these quid pro quo concerns, the idea that there's going to be contributors coming in and covering all the candidates' debts, which is like a gift that they might anticipate in exchange for like special favors or something. In the the reasoning there was, um, and this is something that Kavanaugh referred to, and this is something that uh, Cruz campaign's attorney was kind of ha- drilling home the whole time, which is that these, you know, post-election campaign contributions, they're still bound by the individual cap on campaign contributions, right? So they're still bound by like $2,900. So it's not as if you're going to have one donor come in and pay $500,000 to cover the to cover the outstanding debts of a candidate. Um, so they, they really suggested that there's like an like a inconsistency there in the logic of, of Congress allowing up to $250,000 of this money, but not like not anything above that. Um, so that was kind of the argument on the merits. But you said that the merits potentially are all that's left. And this is where I kind of want to flip the script a little bit. It's This has been a complicated okay. case so far. It's about to get a little bit more complicated. I was waiting for the script flip, though, because like you said at the outset that we can't read the tea leaves. So I'm like wondering, like, well, they just seem skeptical here. <laughs> like, it seems to be going, you know, for Ted Cruz here. What, where, how do you flip the script? Okay. What happened? Let's start with the BCRA, this Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. 
This is a law that has an interesting provision in it, and it basically says that any constitutional challenges to the provisions of the BCRA have to be litigated before a three-judge panel in district court. You know, most most legal challenge, most constitutional challenges don't work like that. It's before a single judge, right? Um, and in order to meet that three-judge criteria, you have to challenge a particular provision of the statute. Now, a number of justices at arguments suggested that Cruz, the Cruz campaign didn't meet the criteria for coming before this three-judge panel. Specifically, they agreed with an argument set forth by the uh, government in this case that really this case should be a statutory case. It shouldn't be a constitutional law case. And, I'll, and I'm going to circle back on something that I mentioned you know, earlier in, in the discussion of this case. And that is, remember the FEC regulation that imposes that 20-day deadline on repaying debts? Yes. So <laughs> that's the reason <laughs> why, right. So that's the reason why Cruz, according to the government, lost the $10,000 was because he had to okay. treat it as a campaign contribution because it came after 20 days. That is, this has nothing to do with the, the BCRA's bar on pre or post-election funds. So Kagan, Roberts, Breyer, and other justices, they were pointing out that really your gripe here is, they were pointing out to Cruz campaign, really your gripe here is with this FEC deadline. It's not with this particular statu- this particular provision of the BCRA. So this shouldn't have been a constitutional case at all, they're suggesting. This should have been like an administrative law case where you say that you know this FEC rule has no basis in the statute whatsoever. So it's a statutory case. So that's why I say that you know that could be an independent reason why the government may prevail in the case. Um, it's an alternative theory of why the Cruz campaign lacks standing and could, petite, could be a reason why uh, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the government and dismisses this challenge to a particular provision of campaign finance law. So it's it's kind of a mouthful. Um, I hope we made it through the other side more or less unscathed. And I think that about does it unless you have any follow-ups on this particular weedy case. No, I, I think you covered it there. And you I feel you like, don't want me like, to ever mention this case again, basically, is what you're saying. No, no, I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm just saying, you know, campaign finance laws are are, are, are meaty things to dig through. You did a great right. job here, I think. Um, oh, thank you. But I, I would like to probably wait till we see the this opinion <laughs> before we have to talk about this again. Yeah, um, that's fair. No, that's but, totally fair. But no, I think this has been great. Um, it feels like, some really interesting First Amendment cases, um, you know, in the pipeline here to be on the watch for. I'm glad we kind of broke these down. Um, but yeah, I think that's just about does it for us today. Thanks, Jimmy. I think so. I think so, Natalie. Thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporters, Corey Atkinson, Brian Dowling, and Vin Guerreri. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.